Well, hello, everyone. Come on. Hello, everyone. Hey, good to be here. It's actually been like three weeks since I've been in this pulpit, so it's really good to be here. Um, Just to let you know, I wasn't just meditating or dilly-dallying during that time. Um, I was actually virtually attending a preaching conference called the Festival of Homiletics, and so I was able to view hours and hours of workshops and sermons and sessions, and so now I actually know everything there is to know about preaching. So you guys are going to be doing miracles and handling snakes after this and stuff like that. Just kidding. No, it's funny that I say that because this actually was probably the hardest sermon that I've ever had to prepare. (laughs) Um, And I haven't been in ministry for that long, so I'm sure there'll be more uh, that are difficult. But it's not really because of the sensitive content or anything like that, but if you know me, uh, you know that I'm what you could call a type A person. I think if there was a letter before A, it'd probably be that type. I like predictability, rhythm, repetition, structure. And so we've been in Acts, we've been in New Testament narrative for about six months. Last year we were in Old Testament narrative. So one genre of scripture, the same characters, the same storyline. And then Mike throws this new series at me, a different genre of scripture and this very uh, interesting idea of contextualizing these letters in the story of Acts, which we just preached. So Mike said a few words about this, but that is what we're going to be doing for the next few months. We're going to skate through the Pauline epistles. And so those are the letters written by the Apostle Paul, who really became the main focus of the book of Acts over the past few months. But we're not going to look at these letters in the order in which they're printed in your Bibles, which is the canonical order, we're going to be looking at them in chronological order. So, likely the order in which they were written historically during Paul's missionary activity. And so the question that I want to ask, and hopefully answer, at least in this morning's message, is not what can we learn from Paul, although that is a very valid question to ask of these letters, but I want to ask, what can we learn from these churches? What can these ancient formations of Christians teach us about how to be Christian today in our current cultural moment? So that's the question that I'm going to ask this morning of the Thessalonian church, almost looking at them as a case study, a glimpse into historical reality, helping us to be the church today. And so that's at least kind of the overriding question of my messages. Mike's might be different, I don't know. Now, I am going to use a PowerPoint this morning, which I normally don't do. There we go. I figure if we're doing this contextual move, we have to set it in its geographical context. So I have a map up here. Hopefully you can see it. Um, And this purple arrow up top, it's the uh, top left, that is where Thessalonica is. And so as we heard in the scripture reading, Paul and Silas and Timothy established the church in Thessalonica, and that's documented for us in Acts chapter 17. 
So it might be hard to see, but a few dots up from that, so I guess it would be northeast, there is the town of Philippi. And there's another letter in the New Testament, the letter to the Philippians, and we'll deal with that letter later on. But Paul and his associates did some ministry in Philippi in chapter 16, and there we get the story of uh, Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the miraculous release from prison. But there was much persecution in this town of Macedonia and Philippi, and so they move on to the town of Thessalonica. And we read about Thessalonica in Acts 17. Now, what's striking about Thessalonica is that Paul did not accept financial support from the Thessalonians in his ministry. It says that he worked night and day to pay his own bills, his expenses in Thessalonica. Now, what I think happened, and what some scholars argue, is that Paul met Lydia in Philippi, and Lydia was a worker of fabric, purple fabric. And so she was connected to these artisan guilds, these handworker, leatherworker guilds. And we know that Paul was a, a tent maker. We read about that in the New Testament. So it seems like Lydia helped connect Paul to some of these handworker guilds in Thessalonica. So when he arrived, he had work. Otherwise, he would starve in the ancient world. And so Paul, between weekends, is working night and day with these Gentile Macedonian hand workers, and knowing Paul, he's preaching the gospel. <laughs> but it says in Acts 17 that on the weekends, on Shabbat, Friday night to Saturday night, he would go to the synagogue, and he would preach to the Jews in the synagogue at Thessalonica. Now, it seems that some Jews believed, some, and not a few, it says leading Greek women or Jewish sympathizers from among the Gentiles, but most of the converts in Thessalonica were among the working class, were among these Gentile Macedonian handworkers to whom Paul preached the gospel between weekends. So if he's there for three Sabbaths, we're thinking three weeks, not a lot of time. And after three Sabbath sermons, he meets severe resistance from the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica. And so we read about this in other places in Acts where the Jewish officials heard about what they were preaching, thought that Paul was saying away with the law of Moses, and they tried to arrest him. And I could go into detail, more detail about this, but I won't. Ultimately, they have to leave Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So they go south. You probably see Berea, the dot to the southwest of Thessalonica, also in Macedonia, and so they do the same thing there. But the Jews from Thessalonica hear about it, and they go to Berea, and they try to get Paul and his associates. So ultimately, they know that they just have to leave Macedonia entirely, and that is what they do. So Paul and his two associates go south. You can see the purple line south. They took a boat so they're traveling by sea down to Athens, and I preached a sermon um, about Paul's speech, the Areopagus in Athens, Acts 17, but what happens is that Paul is so anxious about this young church at Thessalonica that he can't, he can't leave them without support. And so Paul, and it seems Silas, agree to keep going, and they send Timothy 
back to Thessalonica, back into this situation full of strife, persecution, violence, hoping to establish them in the faith. And so, Paul continues on with Silas to Corinth. That's, don't know if you can see it, but that's the red arrow, Corinth. And Paul is waiting for Timothy to return with a report about the Thessalonians. And long story short, Timothy does return and tells Paul that the Thessalonian church, mostly Gentile, in the midst of persecution, had remained faithful to Jesus. And Paul is just beside himself with joy. So from Corinth, wrapping up here, from Corinth, he writes a letter to the Thessalonian church. He can't go there in person, so he writes a letter to encourage them in their faith and to tell them that he really, really wants to see them again. So that is the basic context. And as I prepared this sermon, you know, I've read 1 Thessalonians a number of times, but I obviously read it over and over again, probably 10 times for this sermon. Short letter, so you can do that. But as I just kept pouring over this letter, I kept noticing two themes. Two themes in particular just jumped off the page in my readings of 1 Thessalonians. Those themes were holiness and love. Holiness and love. Now, I looked at the amount of occurrences and compared it with Paul's other letters, and although it occurs more times than, say, Romans or 1 Corinthians, those are huge letters. So given the length of Thessalonians and the amount of occurrences, these themes are predominant in a notable way. So I began to wonder, are these themes connected in any way, love and holiness? Or is Paul just commanding independent virtues, be holy, be loving? The question that started to guide my study was, what is the relationship between love and holiness in 1 Thessalonians? And that is the question that I'd like to answer for us this morning. So, like I said, it was a hard sermon. I went back and forth with what texts to go through. Uh, I had three at one point and then a different three at another point. Um, But in the end, I decided that less is more. So we're just going to look at one short text this morning. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord, there is a lot here. And we pray for focus. Focus. We pray, Lord, that you would transport us back in time, back in culture, to the experience of this early community. Help us, Lord, to learn from them. Help us to be open to new ways of being the church today. Guide us as we explore this text together. Be glorified, please, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the passage we'll be looking at uh, is 1 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 11. 311, uh, you can find it on page 987 of most of the Pew Bibles. 
And so 1 Thessalonians 3.11, you can turn there. But as you're turning, let me just note for you that 1 Thessalonians, get this, is the most ancient Christian document that we possess. This is the earliest Christian text ever written that we still possess, okay? So what that means is that if your Bibles, your New Testaments, were displayed in chronological order, 1 Thessalonians would be listed first. (laughs) The earliest gospel, thought to be Mark, wasn't written until about 70, so the 70s A.D., and some scholars put 1 Thessalonians at the early to mid-40s, 40s, within 10 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, 5 to 10 years before Paul's next letters, 1, 2 Corinthians, maybe Galatians. So this is old. This is a rare glimpse into the earliest manifestations of what we now call Christianity. So just keep that in mind as we move forward. Now, I said 3.11 is where our text will begin, but let me set it into its literary context. The section just before, which is about 14 verses, it's the end of chapter 2 up through 3.10, comes right before our passage. This, in this section, Paul expresses his anguish, his personal anguish, at having to leave the Thessalonians when he did. He departed much earlier than he had wished. He was forced out of the city. Uh, And he was really struck, hurt in heart, at having to do that. I think we can relate with that situation where Paul was with some people in person, and then at a moment's notice, he was separated from them and had to communicate to them remotely and longs to see them again in person. I think we can relate to that experience. So that is coming right before our passage, this very visceral, personal, emotional expression of anguish at being separated from them. And then here we get a prayer for endurance, where Paul prays for the continued faithfulness of the Thessalonians. And it actually ends part one of the letter, significant bookend. So as I read it, I'm going to read it for us slowly in the ESV. As I read it and as we study it, I want you to keep in mind this question. How are holiness and love related in this prayer? 1 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself... And our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's read it again. Now, now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Thanks be to God for his word. (laughs) 
That's it. A brief three-verse prayer that gathers the disparate strands of theology and devotion from the entire letter into this compact little passage. That's why I picked this one text, because I think it answers for us the question, how exactly are holiness and love related? So I'm just going to walk through it verse by verse over the next few minutes. It's obviously short. We're going to spend most of our time on verses 12 through 13. So keep it open in front of you. We're going to study it carefully. First, in verse 11, it's pretty plain what Paul is saying. He is saying, May our God and Father and the Lord Jesus, who are distinct entities in the language, but they are connected here, God the Father and Jesus Christ, may, may those two together as one open a way, make possible an opportunity clear a path, literally, for us to see you again in person. Paul is praying fervently that he could see the Thessalonian believers again, likely that he and Silas and Timothy could return to them and minister in person. That's pretty plain. I will say, though, for Paul to write this, it evinces his personal affection, emotional connection to the Thessalonians. That's key. As we'll move through the passage, you may note there are 13 personal pronouns in these three verses. <laughs> Us, you, me, you. Personal language. It's emphatic. If we did that in English class, we would get marked off. <laughs> Visceral, emotional connection. So in verse 11, Paul's praying that the way would be opened for them to visit the Thessalonians again. All right, that's pretty clear. Let's move on. In verse 12, we get into the theme that I want to look at, and that is the theme of love. I'm going to just try and bring out what the Greek says, and then we can kind of work with it together, okay? He prays that the Lord... It seems like he is distinguishing Jesus here, the Lord Jesus. May the Lord Jesus cause you to be filled with, like a container, filled with, and rich in love. Filled up with quantity, rich in quality, love, agape. Now, it's love for one another, love for those within the community, this probably small, new community, love for one another, and love for all, <laughs> all. And he says, just as we, the three of us, also love you. The image that came to my mind as I was studying this was that of a farmstead, a small holding. So think, think about a farmer on, you know, five or ten acres, planting, sowing, setting, setting things up, and it's a great year, weather-wise, soil conditions. The harvest is abundant, and he finds out that it's not only enough for his, his family, those on the farmstead, but there's an excess. It's so abundant that it's super abundant. There's an excessive amount of produce. 
such that others around the farmstead hear about it, and they come and gather food for themselves. Try to think about that with regard to love. Paul is praying that that the love, the harvest of love among the Thessalonians would be complete among them, yes, not only in quantity, but quality. Think about good produce. Not only that, but that they'd have leftovers for those outside, for all. That is what Paul is praying for, for their love to superabound in their midst and outside. Then in verse 13, we get the words, so that. So that. It's a prepositional phrase to bring us back to English class, suggesting that the prayer for love is a means to another end. That love is not the end of the story, that love is not an end in itself, but that this situation of superabundance of love is purposed towards something else. What is this intended purpose that Paul has in mind? He says, I pray that your love would superabound so that, and the subject is still Jesus, so that he, Jesus, would establish, fix, set your hearts blameless in holiness, before our God and Father, at the arrival of our Lord Jesus at His coming with all the saints. Paul has in mind this last day at which Jesus would return in His glory and set all things to rights in British English, that, that He would initiate this new creation of everything, that it would be consummated and summed up. That's what he's thinking about. And on that day, he wants the Thessalonians to be fixed as blameless in holiness. This this word for fix or establish, the the only way I can think about it, John Schwanda, is when we were setting the fence posts at my house, we, we were trying to establish them, to set them so that they wouldn't move. We used concrete, we used rebar, we set them right into the ledge in the ground. We wanted them to be set, plumb, level, strong, Think about that notion of setting or establishing, but with regard to holiness. I want those posts, the way they look right now, to look the same in 20 years. Paul is thinking of that in terms of holiness for the Thessalonians. To set, fix, establish their hearts blameless in holiness for that day. But how does he think they're going to get there? How does Paul think that the Thessalonians are going to develop holiness? What does he say in verse 12? Love. Love. It seems that in this earliest document of Christianity, the way to holiness to being fixed in holiness in Paul's mind is love, love, love. So, 
I've been doing a lot of thinking over the past few weeks. Uh Uh-oh. That's what Danielle would say. She's not here. Um, No, I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking, particularly about the state and fate of the church, and really the American evangelical church in which I grew up and of which I still am a part. How can the church today develop and maintain holiness? Like a post, both now and in the future. I mean, if only there were some passage of Scripture that talked about this. If only, right? What does Paul say to the Thessalonians about developing and maintaining holiness? How were they to do it, according to Paul? Well, I read through the letter many times in this passage. Paul says almost nothing about maintaining precise, proper theology or beliefs. There's hardly anything in 1 Thessalonians about that. One of the only passages talking about the return of Jesus is really to encourage people whose loved ones had died. There's, there's not a lot about about, about maintaining precise theology. He, he says next to nothing about abiding by individual moral codes or behaviors. It's, it's really not there. The only place it is is in chapter 4, talking about sexual immorality, and that is in the context of the community's health, about actions that would harm other members of the community. What struck me in this text, in this earliest text of Christianity, is that the way to holiness, in Paul's mind, is love. I think the way forward for the church today, especially for the evangelical church, I really think this, is not to double down on our beliefs, our precise statements of faith, I don't think it's to double down on our rigid moral practices, per se. That's at least not what Paul tells them to do. I think the way forward for the church is to double down. (laughs) But it's to double down on one thing, and that is love. It's love. I think to develop holiness, to maintain it, to be fixed in it, which is to say to reach our needy world. (laughs) We don't need stricter beliefs or behaviors. We need to craft a sense of belonging, of love, of holy love. Well, let me close with Paul's words from another passage in 1 Thessalonians. Almost selected this as one of the texts we'd be looking at. It's from chapter 2. Here he praises the Thessalonian community for being this kind of place. For being a place of belonging, a place of love, and thus a place of holiness. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? 
Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Is it not you, First Baptist Church of Freeport? May it be. May it be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the communities, the scribes, the figures in history that thought this text was worth keeping, worth copying, worth treasuring. We are so grateful that we have it in our possession. We pray that you would make us good stewards of this treasure. Lord, help us to be a place of relationship, affection, love both within and without, a place of holy belonging like the Thessalonians were. Fill us with your spirit, energize us with your heart, and help us to be you to this needy world. We love you, Lord, and continue to praise and glorify you now in Jesus' name. Amen.